If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to Romans chapter 15. This morning we are turning to the last two chapters of this book, Paul's letter to the Romans. I've mapped out um, what I believe are 10 more weeks, don't laugh, but 10 more weeks, six more in chapter 15 and three in chapter 16, and then one week to wrap up, which should take us to the end of the summer. But if I'm still preaching in the fall, please don't be mad at me. Um, I I do want to ask you that you'd be praying that God would uh, give myself and the elders wisdom about what it is that uh, he would have us as a church tackle next. Um, We have begun praying about this and asking the Lord what it is that he wants us to, um, to do next. And so I would enjoin you to also join us in those prayers that we would have wisdom and discernment Uh, to hear from the Lord, but whatever it is, it's going to be from the Word of God, and we're excited about whatever it is He would lead us into next. Now, before we set out into chapter 15, two brief points of summary to remind us of where we are. First of all, we're reminded that we're in the so what section of Paul's letter. The first 11 chapters are the what of the gospel, where he lays out what the gospel is. And chapters 12 through 16, which we find ourselves in this morning still, is the so what of the gospel. How ought we to live in light of the gospel truths that he covered for us in the first 11 chapters? And so here in chapter 15, as we set out, we're still applying gospel truths. And so if you're new with us this morning, you've not been with us through this entire study. Um, Please don't hear this morning that as long as you do these things, as long as you heed the exhortations of the Apostle Paul here in chapter 15, that you will make yourself acceptable to God. That would be turning a blind eye to the first 11 chapters where the good news was laid out. The good news began with the bad news that we have no righteousness of our own. That because of our sin, we are completely separated from God and hopeless to be ever to ever be restored to a relationship with God. But God, in his great love for us, in his jealousy for our worship, as we celebrated through the Lord's Supper, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live among us, to live the perfect life and to achieve righteousness that we could never achieve on our own and to die in our place on a cross so that those who place their faith in him might receive his righteousness as their own and might be forgiven of their sins and restored to a relationship with God. That is the gospel that he covered in the first 11 chapters, and it requires us of us faith and repentance, to turn from our sin and self-rule, and to turn to Jesus Christ in faith as our only and sufficient hope to be rescued from what we deserve. That is our response to the gospel. And so please, if you're new with us this morning, Don't just look at Paul's exhortations that we have to dive into in chapter 15 and think that as long as I do these, I'll make myself acceptable. No, we do the commands of chapters 12 through 16. We heed the exhortations of Paul in chapters 12 through 16 because of what God has done for us in Christ and the fact that he has rescued us from what we deserve. And now we want to live a life that honors and pleases and worships him. And so that's why we heed this stuff, not to make ourselves acceptable, to God, but because he has already made us acceptable in Christ. That is the good news. And so let's be sure of what Paul is saying here and what he's not saying here. Second point of summary 
is that obviously chapter 15 follows on from chapter 14. And the, the big picture of chapter 14 was Paul giving us exhortations about how to handle the issue in the body of Christ when there are differing opinions regarding issues like eating meat offered to idols and drinking wine and, and observing certain days as holy or special or abstaining from those days and whether it was right or wrong for Christians to do those things. And there were issues within the church in Rome where some were thinking, yeah, those things are, are required of us as Christians or wrong of us as Christians or whatever, and others had the opposing view. And, and Paul was dealing with this in chapter 14, that there were these differing opinions on things that the Bible doesn't explicitly lay out as um, explicitly or even implicitly moral or immoral. But regardless, different folks within the body of Christ had differing opinions about that. But the problem wasn't that they, wasn't that they had differing opinions. The problem was that they were imposing those opinions on one another. That one person thought it was wrong to eat meat, and so now it's also wrong for you to eat meat. And so they were passing judgment on one another, and they were condemning one another in this respect. Paul mentioned that there were two groups of people in chapter 14 uh, there were those that he called the weaker brothers or sisters, and they were weaker because they were weaker in the faith. And that simply meant that they had a, they had a, a, a deficiency in their discipleship for some reason, where they misunderstood grace and they didn't have a full appreciation for the freedom that we have in Christ to engage or not engage in these sorts of activities that the Bible doesn't explicitly say are immoral or moral. But on the other hand, there were those that Paul called the stronger brother or sister, and those were those who had been discipled in the faith. They had grown enough in their faith to where they understood grace and whose conscience was bound only by Scripture. And their conscience was not bound by what another brother or sister thought was right or wrong for them. Their conscience was bound by Scripture alone. And we recall from our study of chapter 14 that all of us, we all find ourselves in both of those camps. In the body of Christ, we're always going to have people around us who are stronger in the faith than we are, to whom we are a weaker brother or sister. As well as we will always have around us folks in the body of Christ who are weaker in the faith than we are, to whom we are a stronger brother or sister in Christ in the faith. And so we're in both camps here. All of us are both the weaker brother and the stronger brother. And Paul's overarching exhortation in chapter 14 is... Listen, don't quarrel about these things. Instead, love one another more than your extra-biblical conviction about these sorts of disputable matters. And so what that meant to the weaker brother was, listen, don't judge the stronger brother just because he, he has freedom in Christ to engage in this activity or not engage in this activity. Love your brother more than you love your extra-biblical conviction that it's wrong for you. But then to the weaker, to the stronger brother, the one who is stronger in the faith, this overarching exhortation meant don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't cause them to stumble or, or uh, don't be a hindrance to him by carelessly exercising your freedom. That you need to be careful about how you exercise your freedom or else you will be a stumbling block to him or her. Instead, we ought to love our weaker brother or sister love them more than we love our freedom and our liberty to engage in that behavior. So chapter 15 now follows immediately after that. And what we have in these first seven verses that we're going to cover this morning are really further implications of what Paul has already told us about 
the weaker brother, weaker and stronger brother in Christ. So let's read the first seven verses of Romans chapter 15, and then we'll dive in. This is the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it's been such a privilege this morning to worship you in song and in taking the bread and juice. And we ask now as we turn to your word that you would Keep us in a spirit of worship, humbled before your word, submitting to the authority of your word, and dependent on your spirit to both give us understanding and application. We ask in faith, Father, that you would change us, that you would conform us to the image of Jesus that we see in this passage, and that you would do this for your glory, that you might be honored and worshiped through us individually and corporately as the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins talking here about the strong. He says, we who are the strong. Who are the strong? Well, it's us, right? That's what we said. We are the strong. But this is the first time in, in this passage, in chapter 14 or 15, this is the first time that he names this group. He referenced the group back in chapter 14, but he never named them the strong. He simply referred to them as those who were not the weak. But he never called them the strong. But now he does name them the strong. And he includes himself. He says, we who are strong. And the Greek grammar here insinuates that that Paul intends to also include most of his readers. We who are strong. So that also includes you and I. We are part of the we in verse 1. We who are strong. So who are the weak in verse 1? He says, we who are the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So who are the weak? Well, that's also us, right? Again, we're both of these. We're both the strong and we're the weak. That's us as well. Now, some will point out that um, in the original language, there's a different word for weak in verse uh, one of chapter 15 than we found in chapter 14 for a week. There, there, there are two different words in the Greek. But I don't think there's a whole lot of point in that because they're really synonyms. The, the reason why Paul uses a different word for the weak in chapter 15 is because now he's talking about the strong. And the word he uses for strong is the, the dunamis. It's the word from which we get our word dynamite, the strong, the powerful. Those who are powerful in the faith as opposed to those who are not powerful. So now he uses the word adunamas, those who are not strong, those who are not powerful in the faith. And so these are simply synonyms that both mean 
not strong, those who are without strength in the faith. And Paul says, we who are strong, <clears throat> in the sense that we're, we, have, we're stronger in the faith than some in the body of Christ, we who are strong, we have an obligation, he says, to the weak. That word obligation, in most English translations, here and elsewhere, is usually translated as something that we ought to do. There, there, it's an ought. We ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And it usually connotates a debt that we owe. In fact, it's the same word that we saw back in chapter 13, verse 8, when Paul said that we are to owe no one anything except to love one another. We have an obligation. We have a, a debt of love. You remember when we talked about that. We have a debt of love to one another in the body of Christ. Well, that's the same word that he uses here, and he says that we have a debt to the weak. And it's a twofold debt, a twofold obligation. One is positive. And one is negative. The positive obligation that he gives us here in verse 1 is that we ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I think it's the, the most faithful and the most readable, uh, both of those things together for our modern day audience. But I have a problem with that particular word. I'm puzzled at the ESV translator's use of the word failing there. The NIV uses that word as well. But I don't think that's the most, most faithful word to describe what Paul is saying here. This word only occurs once here in this exact uh, way. But there are other variations of this word, declensions of this word, if you will, in other places of the New Testament, some 40-odd times, more than 40 times, and never does it ever refer to the failings of someone. Instead, it always refers to their weaknesses, their infirmities, their, their sickness or their disease. In some way, they're, they're unhealthy or they're weak or they're not powerful. The King James translates this, the infirmities of the weak. But I actually like the New American Standard as it translates this, the weaknesses of those without strength. It's actually the same word as the word weak. In other words, he's saying to those who are dunamis, those who are powerful, you have a debt, you have an obligation to bear with the adunamas, the weakness of those who are adunamas weak. So that, to me, that's the most faithful way of saying this. I don't think what Paul is saying here, he's not referring here and thinking of the, the, the weak in terms of their failures. That, that gives us the connotation that he's talking about their sin. And that's not what he's talking about in context here in chapter 14 and 15. Instead, what Paul is talking about here are those weaknesses that make the weak in faith weak. And we've already established, what are the weaknesses that make the, those who are weak in the faith weak? They are those things that, that cause them, just for, because of a lack of discipleship, because of a, a lack of, of growing in Christ. Maybe they're a new believer. Maybe they've just never grown in their faith. Maybe they've never been discipled. But for whatever reason, they misunderstand grace. And they don't have a full appreciation or comprehension of the freedom that we have in Christ to either eat the meat or not eat the meat, drink the wine, not drink the wine, observe one day as special or observe all days as the same. And so the weaker brother has these weaknesses in this regard. And Paul is saying here in verse 1 that we have an obligation 
a debt, if you will, to bear with those weaknesses. Now, the word bear means to carry. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul tells us that believers, as believers, we ought to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which means to carry one another's burdens. What are burdens? There are the things in life that weigh us down, the things that are a part of life in a fallen world that cause brothers and sisters in Christ and the church to feel the weight of the world and weigh us down. And then Paul's exhortation there in Galatians 6 too is that we ought to come alongside one another and help, help one another carry those weights, carry those burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But here, Paul says that we ought to carry the weaknesses of the weak. How do we do that? How do we carry, bear with the weaknesses of the weak? How can we carry the proclivity of the weaker brother when they impose a a stricter moral requirement on themselves than Scripture would otherwise require? I think in part the answer is what Paul has already told us in chapter 14. That part of the way in which we bear with the weaknesses of the weak is being very careful with how we exercise our freedom in Christ. To eat meat, not eat meat, drink wine, not drink wine, whatever the case may be. And that in some cases we may even choose to limit our freedom in Christ out of consideration for them so that they would not stumble and so that we would not become a hindrance to them and harm their faith. So in this sense, bearing with the weaknesses of the weak means to set aside my liberty or my right to exercise freedom in Christ out of consideration for my brother or sister in Christ. And this seems to be very much in line, obviously, with what Paul has been saying all along in chapter 14. But I think also that Paul has in mind here more than simply not causing them to stumble. He wants us not to just tolerate the weak in the body of Christ. He wants us to carry their weaknesses. He wants us to to carry those things by actually respecting their opinions in these matters and not looking down on them for their weaker consciences, but encouraging them That though they misunderstand grace in these regards, what they are trying to do, if their motives are pure, is that they are trying to honor Christ, and they're trying to glorify God. And we bear their weaknesses in this regard by encouraging them in that, that that I'm encouraging you because you are honoring Christ in what you are doing. You're seeking to glorify God, though they may be... uh, misunderstanding grace and not appreciating freedom in Christ as they do so. So Paul's telling us that we have, we who are stronger in the faith, who are more mature in the faith, we have an obligation, first of all, to bear with the failings or the weaknesses of the weak. And then he gives us the negative obligation. The negative obligation in verse one is to not please ourselves. And this isn't really, this is not like a second obligation. It's simply a way of restating the first obligation, that our obligation is to bear with the weaknesses of the weak, to help them carry those weaknesses, and not to please ourselves. That's really just a way of restating this. And then this negative obligation is counterbalanced in verse 2 with another positive. He says, let each of us 
please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, when he talks about neighbor here, he's talking in context. As we read chapter 14 and 15, he's talking in context about brothers and sisters in in the body of Christ. So he's talking about relationships with one another in the church. The, the, The overarching theme of chapter, really from the middle part of chapter 13 all the way through chapter 15 is unity in the body, harmony in the body of Christ. And so that's the rubric under which we find this particular exhortation, that that we ought to please his neighbor for his own good. So now when he talks about pleasing in verse 1 and verse 2, he's talking about the, the contrast between pleasing self and pleasing our neighbor. Strong's Dictionary suggests that the root word for this word, please, is a word that means to lift up or to take away by exciting one's emotions. And so the idea, the, con- the connotation here is a lifting of one's spirit. That, that when we please someone, we, we lift their spirit, we encourage them. And so we can either be all about doing this to ourselves or doing this to others. We can either be all about pleasing self or we can be all about pleasing others. And Paul is telling us that while we have the freedom in Christ to quote unquote do as we please with respect to these kind of disputable matters that he's been dealing with, he says though we have the right to do as we please, we have a deeper obligation. And that deeper obligation is to please our neighbor for his good, to build him up. So now Paul is moving on again from merely tolerating those who are weaker in the faith to now saying that we have an obligation to please them, to lift their spirits, to lift them up, to build them up, to encourage them. And that to do this will require self-sacrifice on our parts as the stronger brother or sister in Christ. So if we were to put verses one and two together and come up with kind of a a summary exhortation of these two verses, we would say that Paul is exhorting us that we have an obligation, a debt, to sacrifice pleasing self in order to lift up others. That's the summary exhortation of those two verses, to sacrifice pleasing self in order to lift up others. Now, as you look at that summary exhortation, we see at least four themes that Paul has been laying out for this, laying out for us in this second half of the letter. First of all, we see the theme of sacrifice, sacrifice pleasing self. We're talking here about sacrificing self. And, and, and Paul began this theme in the very first verse of the practical section of Romans, in Romans 12, verse 1, when he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, because of this incredible gospel that he's laid out in chapters 1 through 11, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, your rational worship. He appeals to them because of what God has done to lay our bodies, our our lives before God, to offer up all of who we are to God as a sacrifice. And so Paul now is continuing to build on that idea of sacrifice in the Christian life. 
especially for one another in the body of Christ. A second theme that we see here is the theme of humility. We're sacrificing pleasing self. Humility, and this is a a theme that Paul began in verse 3 of chapter 12 when he said, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, he said. And so he began that theme there of humility, that in the body of Christ, as we're seeking to apply the gospel, we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Instead, we ought to think of ourselves with sober judgment, with humility. He's building on that theme here. The third theme that we recognize in this summary statement is our obligation to one another in the body of Christ. Because this is very others-centered, right? Sacrifice pleasing self in order to lift up others. This is a theme that we saw, again, back in chapter 13, verse 8, as he talks about our debt to love one another. Owe no one, uh, owe no debt to anyone except to love one another. That we have a debt to one another. We have an obligation to one another. He's building on that now, saying that we have an obligation to one another to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. And then the fourth theme that we recognize in this summary statement is the theme of lifting others up. And we saw this last week in chapter 14, verse 19, when Paul said, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And so Paul is exhorting his readers and us, by way of consequence, that we're to be sacrificing pleasing self. Not that we're to never... um, be pleased with how we live our life. That's not what he's saying, but he says that we're to be willing to sacrifice pleasing self in order to lift up others. And and what we have to see here is that this is very contrary to our sin nature. Our flesh does not want to do this. In fact, we could say that our flesh wants to do the exact opposite. Our flesh wants to sacrifice others so that we might lift up self. That's what our flesh wants to do. Our flesh doesn't want to sacrifice and offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice. It doesn't want to do that at all. It it doesn't want to grow in humility. It wants to grow in self-importance. Our flesh, our sin nature, sees no obligation to one another, sees only an obligation to self. Otherwise, does not concern itself with lifting others up. It only concerns with lifting self up. And so this is very contrary to our sin nature. And because this is contrary to our flesh and our sin nature, Paul now gives us an example to inspire us. And so in verse 3, he sets before us the example of Jesus Christ as one who did not seek to please himself. Verse 3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That latter part of verse 3 is a quotation from Psalm 69. And in that psalm, the psalmist is speaking with God. And so the you there is God and the me is us. It's the, it's the psalmist in this story. And the psalmist in Psalm 69 is speaking to God and begging that God would save him, asking God to rescue him. And he talks about how much reproach he has endured because he's seeking to do the right thing and live for God. And serve him. And he says, in essence, in that psalm, all those who hate you hate me, 
because I'm your servant. Now, Paul's point in quoting from that psalm is that in Jesus coming to earth, taking on flesh, living in a fallen world as a man, and bearing the reproach of God when he was nailed to a cross, he was not doing this to please himself. If he was, he would never have gone to the cross. You remember the story of when Jesus was arrested on that night. You remember they came under cover of darkness and they brought the soldiers. And what did Peter do? He pulled out his sword and he tried to, I think he tried to kill him. I think he tried to inflict a mortal wound, but he was a fisherman and and he missed and he cut off the guy's ear. And what was Jesus' response to Peter in that setting? It's recorded for us in Matthew 26, verses 52 and 53. Then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. But then look at verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion was 5,000 soldiers. And so 12 legions would be 60,000 soldiers. Paul's point here is that if Jesus was out to please himself, if that's what Jesus was about, then he would have appealed to his father for those 12 legions, for those 60,000 angels. And you better believe they would have done a lot more than chop off a soldier's ear. Jesus wasn't out to please himself, as Paul says here in verses, verse 3 of chapter 15 of Romans. He was out to please and serve us, the weaker brother. As Jesus says of himself in Mark 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking of himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Talk about bearing with those who are weaker. That's exactly what Jesus did as he bore the weight of our sins. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus bore the weight of our sins to Calvary. And in so doing, he bore the reproach of God that should have been on us. So in verse 3 of Romans chapter 15, Paul is setting before us the example of Jesus Christ who looked out not only for his own interest, but one who looked out for the interests of others, namely us, sinners, the weaker brothers and sisters. Paul also sets forth Jesus as this same kind of example in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we have that familiar passage of the condescension of Jesus, the humiliation, Jesus humbling himself willingly, Just listen to what Paul says of Jesus. First in verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing, here's the exhortation, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's the exhortation from the Apostle Paul to consider others and to sacrifice uh, pleasing self. Now is his appeal to an example. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, even though he was God, he did not demand the rights and privileges of God But instead, verse 7, he emptied himself, that is, he, he voluntarily limited his divine rights and powers by becoming a man. He says, by taking the form of a servant, that's the doulos, the the slave of God, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is what was the most humiliating way to die in the first century. And Paul's point here is that if Jesus had wanted to please himself, then he never would have condescended himself to become a man. He never would have put on flesh to become a man if he was simply out to please himself. He was the second person of the Trinitarian Godhead, the eternal son of God in glory. If he was primarily about pleasing himself, he never would have put on flesh as a man. And he certainly would not have humbled himself by allowing himself to be nailed to a Roman cross in the place of rebellious sinners like you and I. He would have stayed in glory. He would have stayed by the Father's side. But he didn't because he was not out to please himself. He was out to please his Father and he was out to please and serve us. Now, I want to offer a bit of a caveat here. When we're talking about pleasing our neighbor, pleasing man, we need to be careful with how we understand that. Because what we're not saying here is we're not saying, not talking about pleasing man instead of pleasing God. That's not what we're talking about. When we read in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, that must be weighed against Verses like Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, where Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? He goes on, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So are those contrary to one another? Well, we need to look at them in context. In in Galatians chapter 1, Paul is talking about the purity of the gospel. That the pure biblical gospel is offensive to man's sense of self-righteousness. It's offensive to that. It's true, but it's offensive. But because it was offensive, there were some folks coming to the church in Galatia, and they were preaching a different gospel, a false gospel, one that wouldn't offend one that actually appealed to one's sense of self-righteousness instead of offending it. One that told people what they wanted to hear instead of telling them what they needed to hear. And Paul says twice in Galatians chapter 1, let them be accursed for bringing you this false heresy, this false gospel that is no gospel at all. This is the context in which we read Galatians 1.10. He says, for, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? For if I'm trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, guys, I'm going to give you the true gospel whether you want it or not. Because it's what you need. It's what you must have. He's saying, if I was out to please man, 
then I wouldn't give you this gospel. I would give you the same gospel that the other guys are giving you, one that doesn't offend your sense of self-righteousness. But I'm not out to please man. I'm out to please God, and so I'm going to give you the true biblical gospel that you actually need. So what do we learn from that? We learn that when pleasing man runs counter to pleasing God, obviously, clearly, we are to please God. That's always to be our default. We are to always seek to please God. Again, not in order to earn acceptability to God, but because he has already made us acceptable in Christ. Because he has transformed us by the gospel, we want to live a life that pleases him, that lifts his spirit, that encourages him, that honors and glorifies him. That's what we want to do, and that should always be our default. But in chapter 15 of Romans, we're not talking here about a situation where pleasing man runs counter to pleasing God. That's not the context here. Instead, in chapter 15, we're talking about pleasing God by pleasing man instead of pleasing self and therefore not pleasing God. That's what chapter 15 is about. So look at verse 2 again. He says, let each of us please his neighbor to what end, we ask. He says, for his good to build him up. And so the fruit of this pleasing of one's neighbor is that your neighbor is built up in the faith, that they are encouraged. Pleasing him or her is to their benefit. It is, it is to their good. And this is pleasing not only to them, but it is pleasing also to God. And so both in Romans 15 verse 3 and in that passage that we looked at out of Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> Jesus is our example of one who sets his own interests aside and looks out for the interests of others. And I think it's also interesting to note that just a few verses later in Philippians chapter 2, Paul laments over all of the church leaders in Philippi that are only looking out for their own interests. He, in fact, he says, that's why I'm sending you Timothy, because he's the only one who isn't. He's the only one who's looking out for the welfare of others. Listen to verses 19 through 20, 21 of Philippians 2. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Nobody else is concerned for your welfare. Instead, he says in verse 21, for they all, all these other leaders, all, they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. So Paul is lamenting about these other leaders in, in the Philippian church. He's miffed at them. But why? Not because they're preaching heresy. Not because they're living immoral lives. Certainly he would be miffed at that as well. But he, he's, he laments this not because they're preaching a false gospel. Not, not because they're living in immorality. But because simply they're out for their own interests. Instead of looking out for the interest of Christ and his church. So we're told here to follow the example of Jesus in Philippians 2 verses 3 through 11. Instead of the example of the other leaders in the church at Philippi. But I don't think that we're given the example of Jesus Christ in Romans 15 verse 3. Simply as an example for us to strive to follow. I think that's part of it but I don't think that's all of it. I think we're also given the example of Jesus Christ in Romans 15, verse 3, to remind us, I think, that this is the image 
to which we are being conformed. As we grow in Christ, as we, as Romans 12:1 says, as we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind, as we dive into Scripture, as we grow in our faith, be encouraged, believer. We're being transformed into the image of Jesus. We're being conformed into the image of one who looks not only out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Someone who is willing to sacrifice pleasing self in order to lift up others. And so if this is a challenge for you, if you struggle with, with sacrificing pleasing self, if you struggle with seeking to make your life more others-centered, then be encouraged. Continue to grow in faith. Continue to practice the spiritual disciplines. And as he conforms you to the image of Christ, he will conform you to one who more naturally will begin to do that instead of naturally seeking to sacrifice others in order to lift up self. So we, I think we ought to be encouraged as he gives us the, this example of Jesus that he's doing the hard work of conforming us into that image. And we can be encouraged by that. And so the work of God conforming us into the image of Christ is what Paul leads to next. So knowing that this is a high and important calling, and as we've established, a very difficult calling, Paul could only, uh, Paul, Paul now wants to fill us with hope by reminding us that God uses Scripture to conform us to the image of Christ. He uses the Word of God in this process of transformation. That's why he said in 12.1, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As we, as we feast on the word of God, we're conformed to the image of Christ, and this gives us hope. It's as if Paul's quotation from Psalm 69 at the end of verse 3 prompts Paul to then say, you know what, this is one of the ways God uses Scripture to conform us to the image of Jesus. Look at verse 4. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in former days is the scriptures. Paul could only have been referring there to the Hebrew scriptures, which we have today canonized as our Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days. He's talking about the Old Testament here, the Hebrew scriptures comprised of the historical narratives the law, the prophets, the songs, the wisdom literature. And Paul tells us that part of the purpose of the Old Testament scriptures, he says, whatever was written in former days was written for what purpose? For our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's written for our instruction. So that's good news. The scriptures weren't just written for the original ancient audience to which, Paul, to which the, the writers of the Old Testament originally wrote those works. They're also written to us. They're written for our instruction as well. Even those parts of the Old Testament that we say we're no longer bound by, even like the ceremonial law that we say we're no longer bound by that, those parts still instruct us by reminding us of God's purposes throughout redemptive history. It instructs us so that we might have hope. Our hope is built, our faith is built when we feast on the word of God. And that's what Paul was informing his readers when he wrote Romans 15 verse 4. 
Now, why did his original audience, why, why did his, his readers need, they're in Rome, why did they need hope? I think for two reasons. First of all, because of suffering. As they imitated Christ, as Paul exhorted them to, and sought to serve Christ with their life, this kind of life would require endurance and perseverance and much encouragement. And Paul says that the stories of the Old Testament, the stories of the Hebrew Scriptures, the stories of God's faithfulness in spite of the unfaithfulness of God's people, these stories were written for our instruction that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope, he says. The second reason why I think they needed hope is because most of the strong to whom Paul is writing here in chapter 15 were Gentiles. And as Gentiles, they were formerly uh, without hope and without God. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. But now, as Paul explained back in chapter 11 of Romans, they who are the branches from the wild olive, olive branch, they have been grafted in by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. They've been grafted into the cultivated olive tree, the people of God. And it's through these stories in the Hebrew scriptures that the Gentiles have that hope that now they are part of this family. Now they are grafted into the people of God. And this is a new theme that as we dive into the next few verses next week, Paul is going to develop even further that the Gentiles can have hope and encouragement that now they're grafted into this. And it's all part of God's redemptive plan. But he's telling us that through feasting on the word of God, we are enabled, we are equipped, we are encouraged to endure suffering. We're encouraged to keep pursuing Christ and our hope in Christ is built and grows. So Paul here is indirectly exhorting us to feast on God's word, to nourish ourselves with scripture, with God's word, so that the spirit of God would use the word of God to conform us to the image of Christ. And so let me just ask you, are you experiencing suffering this morning? Are you bearing the reproach of God because of the name of Christ in your life? Do you need encouragement to keep pursuing Christ? Do you need more hope that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ? Do you need, do you need greater hope that that is actually true and that it is happening in your life then brother or sister, feast on God's word. Nourish yourself with the bounty of God's fare in his word. And he will do just that. He will encourage you to keep pursuing Christ. He will give you greater hope. We're told in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. As we encounter the God of scripture, as we see his great faithfulness, as we sang about this morning on the pages of Scripture throughout redemptive history, our hope in Christ is built. Our faith in Christ is solidified. 
And woe be unto the believer in Christ who, who through a negligence of feasting on God's word, does not avail himself of that building of his faith and hope in Christ. So church, let us feast on the word of God. I think Paul is exhorting us to do just that. And then Paul closes this section with a prayer. It's a prayer request, really, that, that reminds us of the main point of chapters 14 and 15, the unity of the body of Christ. Not to be caught up in the divisions and the differing opinions about these disputable kind of matters, but instead to have one mind in Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is a prayer of the Apostle Paul. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase there, live in harmony with one another, usually um, in other, most other English translations is translated as have one mind, having the same mind. But Paul doesn't mean here that we should have the same mind with respect to these disputable matters. It means that we should have the same mind with respect to our mission and our purpose and the kingdom, as he said, that is not about eating and drinking, but about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because when we have that kind of unity of, of mission and purpose, when we have that kind of unity, then we'll be able to do exactly what Paul prays for and wishes for in verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the fact that God included Paul's intercessory prayer here in verses 5 and 6 into the canon of Scripture so that we would read it, I think part of the reason why he included that is so that we might join Paul in that prayer, that we too might implore that God would cause us to be of one mind with respect to our mission and our purpose and our reason for continuing to breathe air and be here on this earth, that we would have laser focus about the gospel. Though we differ on these matters of disputable indifference, but that we would have laser focus about the gospel, that we would laser focus about the Great Commission, that we would laser focus on unity and harmony about our mission and focus so that he would be glorified through us. Because after all, that's our reason for existing, to bring glory to God. That's our reason for existing as individuals. It's our reason for existing as a church, to glorify God. And it's the anchor with which Paul closes this section in verse 7 with this concluding statement that really pulls a drawstring on all of chapter 14 up to this point in, in chapter 15. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Which brings us back to the very first verse of chapter 14 when he says, welcome the one who is weak in the faith. But here he generalizes it. And he says, welcome one another. And the basis for us welcoming one another again is the fact that by the grace of God, he has welcomed us in Christ. And the reason why he has welcomed us and the reason why we are to welcome others is for the glory of God. May God be so glorified in us as a church as we seek to worship him by being of one mind 
though we differ on some of these other things, being of one mind about the gospel, about our mission, and about our purpose. Let's pray.